Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. So we are in the middle of a series on the nine principles of ministry here at Midtown Baptist Temple. Uh, The nine principles, we've had different guys teaching different segments of this study throughout the weeks. And I think that there is a bit of a danger uh, of us not understanding this rightly. Okay, so I just want to take a moment to point out why we're doing the nine principles Series. The very beginning of the series, I talked about this is a good reminder for us. We need this reminder. We need to be reminded of the priorities of ministry. And, and all of that is very true. But I think the danger is that a lot of people, especially newer people in the ministry, people who are in discipleship or just now grow, beginning to grow, uh, they think about the nine principles in terms of maybe that's how the pastors and the elders function. Uh, they apply those principles to their lives, and then they use those to govern or lead us as a ministry. But I want to point out to you that that's just actually not true. The nine principles impact and affect every bit of the ministry that we do as a church, every single little bit, all right? And so I just want to, just for a moment, by way of example, point out how that has played out even today, uh, this morning, okay? Uh, Today, we had Nick Hatton preach to us in main service, which was awesome. He's a part of this ministry, and he is a result of discipleship. And the fact that he's preaching in front of our church for the very first time is evidence of the fact that the nine principles are true in his life, right? Uh, When we think about we come into this room every Sunday and there's people that are serving us coffee. That doesn't just happen, right? There are people who volunteer to brew the coffee down the street. And then there's people that come to pick up the coffee and they bring it down here and they lay out the table and they get the cups ready and then they serve you. And they do that because of nine principles. Does that make sense? We've got a group of people that are devoted back here. Uh, to serve our ministry, to make sure that the AV is working. And, and man, week over week, our AV ministry just keeps getting better. Isn't it getting better and better each time we do it? And they serve this ministry. And then after service, you don't even know, but immediately after service, they're making sure that the the sermons are getting up on the podcast and all the different platforms they need to be on. And our website is updated, and they're doing all the things that we take for granted. And that's because the nine principles. I met uh, recently a, a pastor uh, who's become a friend of mine, um, and he, teach, uh, he teaches and preaches or, or shepherds at a church that is, um, is a church plant uh, of a megachurch. It's a satellite church, and we've had many frank conversations about the difficulties of some of the philosophies uh, or the lack of principles, we'll say, in the church that he's, been, been, that he's a part of, Right. And uh, one of the things that he pointed out to me that I didn't even realize, you know, sometimes I just forget what Christian world is like, don't you? Which is really good. That's not like a bad thing. You don't need to feel stupid because you don't know the newest book or the newest, like, marketing technique in, in ministry. But sometimes I do forget what the rest of the Christian world's like. And he reminded me of the fact that many churches hire their worship leaders, these aren't people that are members of their churches. These are people that they've they found I, maybe on Craigslist. I don't know. Um, 
On Indeed, is that like a, you look for jobs on Indeed? Maybe it's on Indeed. Is it, those people exist? And they hire worship leaders. These people might not even be Christ followers, you understand, that are leading churches in worship. And look, and this is what he told me. I have no idea that this is, was a thing, but there are churches that even hire in babysitters to their children's ministry to watch the kids on Sunday morning while the parents go sit in, their, in the cushy sanctuary and, and get you know, some, sort of, some form of entertainment. That, that blew my mind more than anything because we've got here at our church, praise God, people who lead us. And even when the team is, half the team's out of town this week, right? And then the other half of the team served at, mission, or at the, the Christmas thing. And we've got just Alex here this week. Praise God for Alex for leading us in worship. We're never for want in terms of worship. And I'm not paying Alex under the table today. I mean, he doesn't get a check, right? And we've got people down the street from this ministry that are serving in our children's ministry just because they love people. Just, just, just for the sake of love and the gospel. And the idea that any church would ever have to hire out that responsibility to someone who doesn't even understand the gospel is like, is gut-wrenching to me. This is why we have the nine principles, you understand? This is, this is why we hold to these biblical ideas. Now, last week when we were together, uh, a group of men taught us uh, three principles. Number five was our members engage in ministry service. We just got done talking about that. Number six, our leaders are servant leaders, which is also true, right? We are servants of the, of the flock of God. And then number seven, we are always training leaders. And all of that is encompassed in all the things that we've talked about this morning. We can see all those things manifesting themselves in every little thing, in every time Wyatt does an announcement, or every time that I see Elijah serving at the church during the week because someone asked him to do so, or people are volunteering to help fix the building. I see it. I see all these things right here playing out in the tiniest ways, but they're absolutely critical to who we are as a church. Now, we've got two more principles that we want to present you with today. And the first one is going to come from Romeo. No, there you are. Come on up. Number eight, Romeo. Hey, guys. Uh, I'm Romeo. Uh, if you don't know me, uh, I've been coming here for a couple years. Uh, I love you guys. You're my family. Y'all have a good Christmas? Yes. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Can I still say that? Yes. Is it over? Um, no more Christmas music, but... Uh, hey, love you guys. I hope you had a good holiday. Uh, I'm really thankful uh, to be here with you all and to share from the word today. Um, you guys are my family, uh, and I mean that. Um, you know, I just got done spending a lot of time with my family and, you know, praying for open doors and that. And, you know, it, it was an enjoyable time, but uh, being here with you all um, is, is my family. Um, this is the best Christmas uh, I could ask for is to be with you here today. Um, so as Brandon said, we're going to move on with the next principle in our series, and that's going to be number eight. We protect unity. Uh, number eight is we protect unity. Uh, and as we start to dive into this concept of unity, uh, let me take you to the first mention of this word unity in the Bible, uh, and it's in Psalm 133. Uh, here David says in verse one, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Uh, and isn't that so true? It's good, it's right, it's pleasant. Uh, it's a great place to be where brothers and sisters in the Lord dwell together in unity. 
Uh, but so often that's not the case. Uh, we began this whole series with Brandon talking about how ministries all over the Christian world, like we just talked about, are divided as to their focus, their doctrine, their culture, uh, by politics and by the ambitions of their leaders. Um, we see all the fruits of that coming out in our Christian world with the bitterness and the bickering and the divisions and the tensions. Um, while we were driving back from Fall Retreat, uh, Mackenzie uh, and Elijah, we were in the car, me and my wife Becca, and we were listening to this series, uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And oh my goodness, if you're looking for a podcast to listen to while you're driving, that'll give what Brandon talked to you about, about learning about the Christian world today and the mindset and what's going on with all of that. Um, you got to listen to that because that was true over what happened with Mars Hill uh, in the past couple of decades. Um, that happened and it was terrible and it hurt people's walk with the Lord. And we see this all over the lost world, not just in churches. We've all experienced broken relationships. Um, not just in church with our brothers and sisters, but in our families, among friends, at our workplaces. It's inevitable that in this lost and sinful world, uh, there would be division and that there wouldn't be unity. Because unity is a blessing we get from the Lord. To dwell together in unity in our ministries is a good and pleasant thing. And we read in verses 2 and 3, David says, It's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. Uh, that's an Old Testament picture. You know, when Aaron was anointed to the office of high priest and sanctified to the ministry, they poured this oil on him. And that was a picture of the anointing of the Holy Spirit uh, that we receive as New Testament believers as the New Testament priests. We receive an anointing and a blessing. And David says that comes when we dwell together in unity. Verse 3 says it's as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. You all see what the Holy Spirit is doing with this first mention of unity. It, it, the place where brothers and sisters dwell together in unity is like anointing oil. It's the place of God's blessing where there's spiritual life. And that leads us to key point Number one, a unified ministry receives the blessing and anointing of God's Holy Spirit. We saw this all the way two or three years ago whenever we started Acts. Do you remember that? How we saw the earth's earliest believers, they received that promise that the Holy Ghost would come upon them and they would have power to be witnesses and to reach their Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. What did they do next? They gathered together all the men and women in the upper room, and they just prayed. And the Bible says they were of one accord. That's unity. And the weeks passed, and Pentecost came, and the whole, when the Holy Spirit fell upon them and ignited the whole movement, uh, the revival that they saw in Jerusalem, it found them in one accord. And that's the blessing we have when we are a unified ministry. And a unified ministry is a thriving ministry, a blessed, anointed, life-giving ministry. But a divided ministry is a dying ministry. And we can't afford the consequences of neglecting this critical principle for ministry. So how do we protect unity? 
This principle of protecting unity, that phrase, we protect unity, is found in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is the base passage for this concept of protecting unity. Paul here is imprisoned in Rome, and he writes to the church at Ephesus, and he says, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word keep means to preserve, to protect, to guard. He's calling us to protect unity. Now to just look at this passage, this base passage for protecting unity, verse 1 is what we've been talking about with all the other principles. The vocation, the work that we've been called to of making disciples, of training leaders, of serving in ministry uh, so that we can reproduce it all over the world and plant churches. Right, The mission that we're focusing on in this conference, that's the vocation that we've been called to. But here Paul calls us to walk worthy of that vocation, to walk worthy of all that the Lord is calling to us, calling us to as a church. And he calls us to do that. How do we walk worthy? Well, the key is found in verse 2. It's with all lowliness and meekness. Um, Does that remind you of someone? That's Christ. That's our meek and lowly Savior. Do you remember how long-suffering he was towards you while you were yet in your sins? And he, he waited. 2 Peter 3.9 says God's long-suffering because he's willing for you to repent. He suffered long with your sins. I, I remember for 16 years of my life, uh, I was lost and I was hell-bound. Um, but God forbeared me in love. Um, and so much so that Christ, like we were just singing about with Alex's song, he was willing to die for us while he, we were his enemies. Um, That is how we protect unity. And that's key point number two. We protect unity through Christ-like love and humility. We protect unity by having that lowliness and meekness and long-suffering that he had for us. Philippians 2 describes the kind of attitude we must have if we're going to protect unity. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 1 says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, Paul says. It would be good and pleasant and right and joyous if we were like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And then he gives us some practical applications of that. In verse 3, he says, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. You know, the church shouldn't be a place of arguments and bitterness and uh, people pridefully going after their own things. It says, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Uh, this is the part where Pastor Sam would say, Turn to your neighbor and just say, You're better than me. And you ought to be able to, I won't make you do it, but the Holy Spirit's moving already. So we're, we're applying this verse. Um, you ought to, just think about them. You can look up here, you don't have to talk. Uh, but just think about the person sitting next to you. They're better than you. That's what Christ esteemed. Um, but that's not, that's not the way that it is in churches today when we walk in our flesh and we're carnal. Verse 4 says, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Too often churches divide because of selfish attitudes. We're called to be unified, but we're so obsessed with our own things that we don't have a burden for the thing of others. And praise God, that was not the attitude that Christ had when he came to earth to die for us. 
I mean, Merry Christmas, right? The God of all creation, the creator of the universe, esteemed you better than himself. And he left his glory in heaven to come and die for you in the dirt. Verse 5 calls us, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And this is the point where you need to buy the new temple worship album at Mission Focus. There's a really good song about this, uh, about Jesus making himself of no reputation to take upon him the form of a servant. And he was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. I mean, thank God that through one man's obedience, many were made righteous. We share the fellowship we have in Christ because Christ became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I mean, we ought to memorize Philippians 2 as a ministry. It should humble us and make us tremble. He came to seek and to save us. We didn't deserve that or earn that. He just loved us. And he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. So the next time you're setting up chairs for hospitality or coiling the XLR cables for AV or handing out snack for your kid town class or filling up the baptismal, just meditate on those verses, would you? Because it reminds us that the saints we serve are better than us. The saints we serve with and under are better than us because they're worth laying down our lives for because Christ's shed blood was the price for their redemption and mine. And if Christ was here today, he'd be doing the exact same thing. The beautiful thing is, that's what it means that we're the body of Christ. We are all members of Christ's body, and that only works when we function in unison. If Christ is going to work through us, it will be as one body. As a unified ministry, yielding to him and manifesting Christ in our attitudes to others. So ministry leaders, disciplers, are you going out of your way to show Christ-like love to the people that you disciple and serve? Are you going out of your way to come down off your high horse, get in the dirt, pick up the towel, and serve them and wash their feet? Because that is what will protect our unity, is by showing the Christ-likeness that Paul calls us to in this passage. Now, finally, this word unity is only mentioned three times in your Bible. Uh, I mean, you don't have to believe me. Just pull out Blue Letter Bible, search it in, only three times. And that first mention is Psalm 133, uh, where we saw how dwelling together in unity receives that blessing and anointing from the Lord. That second mention is about how we protect the unity through Christ-likeness in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. But the final mention is found in verse 13 of the same chapter. Verse 13 of Ephesians 4 says, Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that's what, you know, Wyatt was talking about in our announcements. Our identity as a ministry is that we want to grow in our relationship with the Lord. You see, that's the unity of the faith. We're united in our belief and submission to God's word because it's through the Bible that we get to know the Son of God. And it grows and perfects us to make, him, make us more like him to grow into the stature and fullness of Christ as a body. Uh, think 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. But the greatest threat to this unity of the faith is the division that comes from not submitting to Scripture. Uh, you know, my favorite class this semester uh, was probably, I, I don't know if you're allowed to pick favorites, um, but 1 Corinthians was really fun. Uh, I got to take it with uh, Becca, and uh, Alex was there. Alex was coming out every Saturday, Brooke and uh, Carly and Greg. It was a lot of fun, Lydia. And, uh, you know, Paul talks about a lot in 1 Corinthians. There's 16 weeks worth of issues that he has to untangle with them. 
But before he can get to their fornication, before he can get to their need to discipline their members, to have a right doctrine of marriage, to not abuse their liberties, to get their spiritual gifts right, before he can get to any of that, you know, the number one issue on his list comes at the very beginning of his letter in verse 10 of chapter 1. He says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, can you hear the weight behind that? Brothers and sisters, in Jesus' name, the word of God commands that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And this is key point number three, because if we're going to reach Kansas City, we must protect unity by submitting our speech, mind, and judgment to biblical authority. That's a hard thing to do. Unity is only protected when we stop saying whatever we want to say behind each other's backs or when nobody's listening. Thinking whatever we want to think in the privacy of our mind, even if what we're saying to each other doesn't line up with that. And judging the way that we want to judge in our flesh. Growing leaders, our speech must protect the unity of Midtown Baptist Temple. Disciples, we have to bring our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. You can't hold strongholds in your mind that keep you from being unified with your brothers and sisters. We can't tolerate pet doctrines that go contrary to what God's word clearly teaches us. We can't afford to carry a perspective of ourselves and of others that causes strife, division, and bitterness between brothers and sisters. It just can't happen. We have to protect the unity of the faith. Otherwise, we're falling prey to the attacks of the enemy. Satan's got the advantage over us. And we've robbed ourselves of the blessing and anointing of unity. I mean, that's his devices. One offhand comment that sows discord, that gets your Bible study all sideways with each other. And then we're not willing to repent and submit our words, thoughts, and perceptions to what the Bible says. You know, uh, me and Becca watched a lot of... uh, Sports documentaries, that's, uh, that's kind of our thing, uh, you know, and um, I, I wasn't into sports before I married Becca. Um, I mean, I, they told me in middle school to try it for football. I don't know what they had in mind. <laughs> uh, the gym teacher set me aside and said, you should do football. I'm like, I don't know about that one. Um, I, I did Scholar Bowl and speech, I guess. Um, <laughs> But, you know, the whole team just falls apart. If there's just one guy on the sideline who just gets full of himself and he's bad-mouthing the coach, bad-mouthing the other people in his position, and it all just falls apart. You know, uh, the, last, the Last Dance, maybe more of you have seen The Last Dance back during COVID when you all had more time than you needed. Um, you know, if Michael Jordan doesn't make the pass to Steve Kerr and say, you know, you're in a better shot to make that shot than I am, you know, uh, uh, this was really mostly for Brandon. You know what I'm saying? Do you remember that part? Maybe you all didn't watch the last dance, but um, he, you know, he put himself aside and he said, I'm not going to go for that last shot. I'll, I'll give it to someone else. And that's the kind of you know, unity of the faith where um, we're in the last, the fourth quarter of the game, right? This is Laodicea and the rapture could be tomorrow. And if we're not on the same playbook, you know, if we don't have the same speech, mind, and judgment, we're going we're gonna to mess it up. And so... You know, just hear this last warning as we close. 1 Corinthians 11. Um, we ha- we're running out of time, so we have to do this kind of quickly. Um, Paul says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Here in context, that's talking about, you know, the bread that pictures Christ's broken body and the cup that pictures his blood. It's the Lord's Supper. He says, you know, examine yourself, because he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself 
That's not damnation as far as loss of our salvation. Um, But it does mean the judgment and chastening of God over our ministry. And that happens when we don't discern the Lord's body, when we fail to protect unity. And so verse 30 says, for that cause, because they did not protect unity, many were weak and sickly among them and many slept. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. When we're fractured and divided like the Corinthians, we tempt God to take away his hand of blessing and anointing over our ministry. So please judge in yourself. Are you protecting unity or destroying it? Are you preferring others or hurting their growth? Ministry runs on the rails of relationships, and if we do not, by God's grace, strive and endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit, will it all fall off the rails? Um, And so we don't have time. I I knew I wouldn't have time. Uh, You know, I just fumbled through the basketball too much. But uh, I'll just leave this with you to study out uh, on your own. And these are just four keys for dwelling together in unity. Uh, We need to have edifying communication. That's the key uh, to protecting our unity is to not let the things come out of our mouth be corrupt, but uh, to be graceful and, and to edify each other unless we grieve the Holy Spirit. Matthew 18 shows us how to work out our offenses when, when we get sideways with each other. It, it tells you, you know, go to that person. Uh, don't talk about them behind their back or just sit in your bitterness. Go and deal it with, it, with them uh, face-to-face and work out your issues. And if you can't, bring another brother in. Um, and if it's so bad that it requires church discipline, you know, that's, that's what it will have to be. Um, but we need to strive to do that. And then uh, I just threw these last two in here um, because I know how hard it is when you're on your ministry teams uh, to just be murmuring and disputing. Um, And that grieves the Holy Spirit in our ministry. Um, And and we need to protect our words and have edifying communication with each other. Uh, And then finally, 1 Peter 5.5 tells us that if in our pride uh, we don't submit to our elders in the Lord and protect the unity of the structure that God has provided in the local church, um, he resists the proud. His grace is for the humble. Um, And so if we'll humble ourselves and low ourselves and have edifying communication with each other and be willing to reconcile where it's needed, um, I I believe that God will use us to reach Kansas City. Um, But it won't happen if we don't protect unity. Um, And with that, I'll hand it over to Braden. Hey, guys. Merry Christmas. Open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 6. We'll go ahead and get started. So as it turns out, eight men have come up here and preached eight principles. And uh, seeing as how there's a big nine up there, well, I reckon we've come to the end. So this is our ninth principle for ministry here at Midtown Baptist Temple. Come on, face ID. There we go. All right. And so uh, just as a word of warning, a lot of this sermon is going to seem quite redundant. And that's because Nick uh, preached like half of it. In first service, so uh, just please don't like check out, but you have heard a lot of this before. All right, so in caboosing this series, we, we come down to our ninth principle, and this principle is unique in that the first eight principles are specific and, and functional principles for doing ministry. Right? We are a house of prayer, okay, that, that educates our ministry that we pray before and after we do anything. All the way down, we, we are always making disciples. The word of God is our absolute authority. Our members are accountable to the word. They engage in ministry service. We're, our leaders are servant leaders, and we're always training more leaders, and we protect unity. These are specific things that we do in everything that we do as Midtown Baptist Temple. 
this ninth principle is a little unique in that uh, it is a, a capstone. It says, okay, so we have these awesome eight things that, that tell us what we do, um, but this is a giant Bible, and there's a lot in here. So to cover everything else, principle nine is that we operate in light of spiritual reality. So, um, hey, this is a giant book, and it's full of spiritual realities. And so instead of reading the entire Bible in the next 15 minutes, I'm just going to encourage you to sign up for LFBI. Spring enrollment is open. Go through that course catalog. Learn all of the spiritual realities in this book. Um, uh, but, but we ain't got time for that. So um, let's start with some groundwork. All right, so starting off with key point number one, and that is that uh, spiritual reality, as it turns out, is real. Wow, yeah, shocker. So a great example of this is in 2 Kings chapter 6. And so in, in 2 Kings 6, Syria is at war with Israel, right? And the Syrian army is going out and, and they're, they're laying wait. They're trying to trap and kill the king of Israel. But Elisha, the prophet, knows what's going on. And so he sends warning to the king of Israel. He says, hey, don't, don't go there. Don't go to this place. And so several times the armies of Syria are ready and the king of Israel just doesn't show up. And so the king of Syria is like, what the heck? Okay, we must have a traitor. Somebody's telling the king of Israel where I am and where my armies are. And one of his servants says, no, 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 no. Elisha, he's telling people what you say in your bedroom. And so uh, one of the servants is, is like, well, what if we, well, the, sorry, the king is like, well, where's Elisha? Let's go get him. And the servant's like, he's in Dothan, which is cool. So now starting in verse 14. Uh, Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host, and they came by night and compassed the city about. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city about, both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answers, Elisha answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Okay, so Elisha's servant sees his circumstances. He sees that all around the city is this giant army and he's terrified because he feels like there's no hope, because he can only see what he sees with his eyes. And Elisha's like, dude, you, you just can't see what's real. And Elisha prays, and his servant's eyes are open, and he can see the spiritual warfare that's going on, the chariots of fire. God's armies were with Elisha and Elisha's servants. Elisha knew there's warfare going on. And we should too. God wants us to engage with what is real spiritually. And so that brings us to key point number two. And not only is spiritual reality real, it's got to be real for us. This has to be real for me. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Get this, guys. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
This is what God wants for his people, is for his people to engage in spiritual reality. We need to have our eyes opened past what we can physically see and understanding what God sees as he looks down and sees his, his bride and the lost world. We need to be like Elisha's servants. We need to get that good LASIK surgery, some, some, good, some good contact lenses. We need to put our glasses on so we can see the world how God sees it. And this is the opposite of what Satan wants, which should come as no surprise. Satan's goal is to have people blind. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Right? And it's not hid like like our awesome AV cords are hidden underneath these rugs. Right? It's not tucked away out of sight. It's there and it's present. They just can't see it because they're blind. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. The lost, the world, Satan's family, it's not that they don't have their eyes open, it's that they're blind. You're sharing the gospel with them, and they're not getting saved. Not because they see the grace of God for what it is, and they see eternity in hell for what it is. If they saw those things, they would accept Christ, but they are blind. Okay, so someone gets saved. Praise God. Their eyes get opened. They can see now. Okay, Satan now wants to eat them. He wants to devour them. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. So Elisha and his servant in that city, right, uh, there's the big army round about, and Elisha has to open his eyes and see it. Um, but, but if Elisha's servant runs away into that army, away from God's army, he, he may still end up dead. Satan does still want to devour you. He still wants you, your ministry to be fruitless. He wants you to not glorify Jesus Christ with your life. That's still Satan's goal. And when we fail to engage and operate in a spiritual mindset, we fail to accomplish the mission that God has given us. When we don't operate in light of spiritual reality, all of our operation is by the power of our flesh. And the only result that the flesh can bring is fruitlessness, exhaustion, and misery. That's not the goal. And one of the ways Satan tempts us and tries to keep us from engaging with spiritual reality is by confusing us as to what spiritual reality actually is. So this brings us to our next big point, and that is that spiritual reality is not emotional reality. What, what you feel is not necessarily what God is doing. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Okay, so every emotion that you feel is not necessarily hell-sent. Every emotion you feel is not necessarily evil, right? We're not supposed to be stoic and cold and emotionless constantly because Jesus wasn't. But the heart is deceitful above all things. So the primary characteristic of your heart and your emotions is liar. Liar. And sometimes liars get it right, man. A broken clock's right twice a day, you know. Your, your, your heart can give you an emotion that is godly. God, the Holy Spirit can move you emotionally, but your emotions alone do not equate to what God is doing. 
If you're feeling something, but you can't find it in Scripture, and your Bible study leader and Brandon think you're crazy, you're probably crazy. Let's take another look through the filter of God's Word before we allow our emotions to move us. Our emotions need to be stewarded. And Nick preached a ton about stewardship this morning, and and here we come to the portion of the message brought to you by Nick Hatton. Um, And and he, he quoted this, but in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And so bringing in into the, the eyes, we're opening our eyes to spiritual reality. We're going to operate in light of spiritual reality. Here is a pressing spiritual reality that we must understand because of its consequences. And this brings our, our final point. And, you know, I tried to find a fun way to say this, but I couldn't say it any better than Hebrews 9.27. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment Okay, spiritual reality time. You are going to die, or you are going to get raptured. And then you are going to stand in front of Jesus Christ and answer for the life you lived if you're a believer. And if you are not saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are going to die. And then you're going to stand on nothing in front of a great white throne and be judged according to your sin. Looking at Revelation chapter 3. Right? These are the, the letters to the churches at the beginning of Revelation. And it talks about Laodicea. And I, w- I want us to see this. So let's look at this. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither, hot, thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Okay, check this out. Verse 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have, no, have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Okay, so, so Laodicea thought they had everything. Because they could only see with their eyes. They could only see the books they published, their giant building, the cool lights, the awesome worship. But they didn't recognize what was spiritually true, that they were wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And that makes Jesus Christ want to vomit, that they didn't get spiritual reality. Because Laodicea, because our time, because Christianity today, because the the people who claim Jesus Christ refuse to recognize and live in light of spiritual reality, we fail as a church. We cannot afford to get distracted by our physical state. Because again, we're going to stand before Jesus Christ. And so, uh, real quick, as as I continue, turn to Matthew 25. And when I stand before Jesus, the thing I want most to hear, what I want more in my life than than anything else, is to stand in front of the God who died for me and have him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Right? We hear this phrase constantly because this is what we want. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You come to the end of your life. You finish your course. You keep the faith. You do what God gives you to do, and you stand before him, and he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Unfortunately, that's only one of two possible outcomes. There is another phrase that Jesus uses here in this parable in Matthew 25. 
So I'm going to just kind of overview the parable. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to pick out some verses. For the kingdom, verse 14, for the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents, and behold, I have gained them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, what we want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. All right, and so he gets through the servant, and the last servant was the one that the master could only entrust with one talent. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee, that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent, uh, oh, uh, in the earth, in the world. Huh. Lo, there hast, uh, thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gathered where I have not strawed. And so we have this bad steward. We just talked about the unjust steward last, uh, last service. We have this bad steward here, and he takes what his master gave him, and he throws it to the earth. He puts it into the world. And what happens when he stands at the judgment seat of the ruler? He gets called a, a wicked and slothful servant. And so what I'm really afraid is that I'm going to get raptured or I'm going to die and I'm going to stand before Jesus Christ and, and what I'm going to hear is not well done, thou good and faithful servant, but rather thou wicked and slothful servant, Braden. You knew I wanted you to share the gospel with your classmates. Thou knewest. Thou wicked and slothful servant, Braden. You knew that I wanted to meet with you every day in my word in your quiet time. Thou wicked and slothful servant, Braden. You knew I wanted you to live in light of spiritual reality, but you chose to waste your life throwing your talents into the earth and living for ease, comfort, pleasure, convenience, entertainment. Thou knewest. And so, so this is why we must live in light of spiritual reality. Jesus Christ deserves all of the glory I can give him with my life. Jesus Christ deserves everything, and we're going to stand in front of him an answer for our entire life. It comes to men once to die. Or sorry, it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. And so if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you must know that you will answer for your servitude to him. And if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you must know that judgment in terms of burning in a lake of fire for eternity is coming as payment for your sins. Spiritual reality demands a response, and we cannot afford to live blinded. Um, and and uh, uh, the end, nine principles. Uh, Brandon's going to close us out. In closing, I, I want to I kind of summarize this and make it as, as practical uh, as possible. You guys have already done a wonderful job of that. But uh, I want to put it in the laps of, of, of people who are in different places in terms of their walk and, and their relationship to this church. Uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, if you will. It says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. In other words, once upon a time, every one of us was a stranger to God. 
We were once on the outside looking in. We were dirty. We were wandering. We were susceptible to all of the elements of the world. And we needed forgiveness. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, extended that to us. And we received it. Some, most of us in this room have received it. Some have not. And I, you know, I beg you, I beg you, do not stand on the outside looking in. It's way better in his love. It's way better in fellowship with him. It's way better knowing that I've been forgiven and cleaned. And, and now I'm a member of the household of God, that I'm a citizen of his kingdom. Romans 8.15 says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be, uh, that we be, may be also glorified together. So in other words, he has made us his family. We are his children, and that makes us brethren. We are a family. We work together. We strive together. We grow together. We weep together. We have, we have commonalities that only family can have. You understand? We are a family. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 says, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And so we're not just a family, we're a family that's built upon something. This salvation that we have, this faith, these doctrines, this tradition of Bible believing and mission-mindedness, it's built upon something. It isn't just floating in midair. This didn't come out of nowhere. That's how cults are. Okay, That is what a cult is. We are, we've, our faith is built upon something. And that something is first and foremost the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 28 says this. Jesus Christ is the sturdy truth for which we have been built upon. And without him, without his sacrifices and his, his sustaining strength, there is no church and there is no Midtown Baptist Temple. There is no kingdom and there are no citizens in that kingdom. He is our chief cornerstone. And with Christ came the apostles, right? The apostles and the prophets and the saints of old who bore the cup of shame, didn't they? Didn't they bore the, the, the cup of, of wrath? That's what we read about in Acts. The men and women that suffered that we might have the word of God handed down to us. They did the hard work. They became our foundation, they're the ones who toiled to ensure that you and I today would have something worth living for. And I'm thankful for that. So Christ laid a foundation that our faith is absolutely reliant on. Now listen to me. It's not just our faith that's reliant on it. It's not just us that relies on Jesus Christ and the work of the saints that have come before us. But it is those future generations of believers that rely on us to continue to lay a foundation for them to build upon. It's critical. Verse 21, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together, fitly joined together, framed 
windows fit within frames, doorways, passages, roofs, sheetrock, electrical, plumbing, all of these things fitly joined together, working together in unison. We groweth together unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through his spirit. We are the house of the Holy Spirit, and we bear the flame, and we will give an account, an account for every action, thought, for every association or dissociation. Who you hang out with has an impact on your eternity. The things that you think about in the quiet, the things that you emphasize, the things that you prioritize, the things that you consider day in and day out, the things you give your emotions to. These things all impact the body of Christ and how things are fitly joined together. Now we began this series by saying that we, we needed this series as a reminder of the priorities that we hold to as a ministry, but it's so much more than that, this, this, this series. See, there are people in this, this room who've only just now begun considering Midtown Baptist Temple their home. And they've only just now begin, begun to allow themselves to think, this is, this, this is kind of becoming my family. And they've only just now begun to think, okay, the things that they're teaching, man, I feel the confirmation of those truths in my heart, and I'm beginning to believe and, and maybe, maybe you're just now realizing how critical discipleship might be for your life. God is fitly joining you to this body, and it's happening without you even knowing. It's, it's happening to you. And it's, it's to you that I want to say this series is for you. Because what God is doing is he's calling you to no longer remain on the periphery of this ministry. But to own these principles and to own these truths as belonging to you. Because if you were to be honest with yourself, this is your church. This is your local church. And it's not just Brandon and it's not just those guys that came up here to preach. And it's not just the leaders and the ministries of the Bible studies. It's not just their responsibility to own the work of the ministry. It's my responsibility to. Christ wants to use the local church to mold, to mold you, to mold us, and to mobilize you, to mobilize us for the work of his kingdom. And so I want to end this series by asking you to come in from the cold, right? Come out, come out of the cold and come into the warmth of the habitation of the Spirit of God and allow yourself to be fitly joined to this work that God would use you and grow you and make you a part of everything he wants you to be a part of. And so we're going to close with worship. Alex, come on up. And as usual, I want to extend an invitation to you. Invitations are really important, aren't they? I get, I get evites to things all the time on Facebook that I never attend. <laughs> Right? An invitation, and the way that that invitation is presented has a lot to do with whether or not I'm going to attend. This is no Evite. This is me looking you in the eye, and this is me asking you to consider something that has great impact on the rest of your life and on your eternity, the reality of, of your spiritual eternity. If you know, 
if you know that you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and it's just a fact, you know it, you can, you, you can sense it in your heart, and you know it intellectually, you have never repented of your sin, then I want to invite you to come forward and meet with one of the counselors that's up here, people that love you, people that care about you, and I want you to have a conversation with them about what it means to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and what it means to receive his invitation to come out of the cold, to no longer be a stranger, to no longer be a wanderer, to come in to be a part of his family. So I want to invite you to do that. But I also want to invite the people in this room that are beginning to understand that this is their church family, that this is, this is Midtown Baptist Temple is their home and Kaya is their ministry. I want to invite you to have a conversation with someone about what it means to get deeper into the family. You know, there's always cousins at Christmas that kind of sit on the outside. They don't really engage. They're off on their phone somewhere. They're not talking to grandma. It makes you upset, right? You're like selfish brats. Grandma deserves some attention. You know those family members? I'm asking you to not be one of those members of this family. Get out from the periphery and come into the fold. And that probably means signing up for discipleship. And, and the week after your first lesson, that probably means determining, look, I, I want to be a part of a ministry. Where do I fit in? Where can I start? Is it the hospitality ministry? Can I serve in Kidtown? Can I serve? I just want to serve someone in my family. That would be the next thing to do is to determine where are you going to serve? Where are you going to allow your life to be folded into this work? And then let God take care of the rest. But I want to invite you to come in deeper and to partake of all of the joys that come with being a part of God's family. Understood? That's what the nine principles are about. Okay, can we own the nine principles? Can we determine to own the nine principles? I'm going to pray. I'm going to have some counselors come up here and hang out. And if you're ready to come forward and have a conversation, I want to, I want to ask that you do that. Today is the day of salvation. You are not promised tomorrow. Period. So do not wait on what you know God is telling you to do today. Do not wait. God is a very patient man. But he is not above. He is not above holding you in justice to his standard. He's not afraid of that. So fear him. Fear him. Because this might be your only opportunity to do what's right. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and we're grateful that you are a God worthy to be feared. There are so many gods in this world that pander to us, that are, that are empty and weak and have no power and have no sense of justice. And they're not worthy of our fear. But Lord, you're terrible and you're mighty and you created all things and you know us. You know the very hairs on our head. You know us. You know every thought that we've thought today. And that should cause us to tremble. It should cause us to tremble. But you are also a God of love. And you've given up everything. You, had the, you know every hair on our head, but you had the very hair of your beard plucked from your face that you might suffer on our behalf. That is love. And we desire to know it. And so, Lord, I pray that, that if there's any person in here wrestling with doubt, 
that, Lord, they would recognize right now that your hand is extended to them in love and that you want to receive them. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work on the hearts and the minds of the people in this room and that you would have your perfect way with us as your bride, as your habitation, the habitation of your spirit. Make us what you will, Lord. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.